Welcome to Pushback. I'm Aaron Maté. The U.S. assassination of Qasem Soleimani, a top Iranian military commander, is the culmination of three years of Trump administration warmongering against Iran. It began with the sabotage of the Iran nuclear deal and has continued with a number of escalatory steps, none more brazen and potentially catastrophic as this murder inside Iraq. Democratic centrists are criticizing Trump, but they have played a role here too. Back in 2017, with the exception of Bernie Sanders, Democrats in Congress voted for sanctions on Iran that helped Trump kill the nuclear deal. And even recently, Democrats overwhelmingly voted for a massive military budget and helped kill a proposal from Bernie Sanders and Ro Khanna that opposed unauthorized military action against Iran. Well, earlier I spoke to Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council. Jamal Abdi, welcome to Pushback. The line given to us by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is that Qasem Soleimani was planning attacks on U.S. forces, and that was the reason for his assassination. Do you buy that rationale? <laughs> Not for a minute. Um, what, now, you know, was, was Soleimani uh, potentially drawing up plans for further, um, you know, proxy attacks on U.S. interests and, and things of that nature? Um, Potentially. Was the U.S. drawing up similar plans? Potentially. Uh, this has been a back and forth that has been going on for, uh, you know, three years now. And the notion that there was some imminent attack in which uh, the U.S. had to take Soleimani out and by doing so uh, was going to prevent this attack, uh, it just it, it defies reason. It, it, it pretty clearly just another... Uh, lie that has been uh, put out by this administration uh, that really feels like a reverse engineering of a legal basis for this strike that has no actual basis in fact. Uh, I assume Pompeo is saying this so that uh, he can claim that this was uh, not illegal under U.S. law and under international law. Uh, we know that they have not briefed Congress yet, and so we do not know what is their actual evidence or how uh, how much they can substantiate this claim. Uh, but I, I just, you know, if the idea was that they were going to take out Soleimani to prevent strikes and now they're afraid that they're going to be Iranian retaliatory strikes, it, the logic just doesn't add up. So why do you think they did it then? That is the, the, the big question right now. Uh, the timing is, is, uh, is interesting. I mean, one could uh, look at the chain of events and view this as sort of a pretty massive and disproportionate uh, escalation and retaliation for the, uh, the the protests at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq, uh, which were triggered by U.S. strikes into the country, uh, which were triggered by uh, Iranian-backed, supposedly Iranian-backed uh, militias uh, killing a U.S. contractor. Um, but like I said, this tit for tat has been going on for quite a while now. And up until now, uh, the Trump administration or Donald Trump himself has managed to be both 
provocative uh, in its rhetoric and in the actions it takes on the economic front in terms of sanctions on Iran, the, the willingness to designate Iran, uh, and the willingness to talk tough. Uh, but when it has come to um, kinetic action, you know, we, we all remember Donald Trump was at the brink, uh, supposedly within 10 minutes of striking, striking Iran. Uh, in retaliation for Iran taking down a drone that Iran claimed was in Iranian airspace, and Trump pulled back uh, and at the time said it was because it would not be a proportionate uh, response. Uh, and I think that the subtext was that he understood that it would likely uh, cross a red line towards uh, all-out military confrontation that would likely ensnarl the United States and um, you know, make a lie of his promise to extricate the United States from uh, the many wars uh, in the region and around the world. Um, now, apparently, uh, that calculation has changed, and Trump was willing to take even more provocative actions to strike, you know, apparently without the permission of the Iraqis, uh, to strike arguably the second most powerful person uh, in Iran's leadership, uh, and the notion that there was no understanding of the implications of this action uh, is 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 pretty dubious. My own theory is, you know, w one of two things. Uh, either one, the United States, and I should really I should qualify this: Donald Trump and the people around him, not the entire U.S. government, certainly not the entire United States, uh, but viewed this escalation cycle with Iran as one in which the United States needed to. Um, uh, show such disproportionate force to deter further Iranian aggression and show Iran, you know, the U.S. is not messing around, we're serious, and we're so tough, we're going to kill your, your top guy. Uh, I think that's a very flawed logic, but I can see that argument being made and it being one based on a, a rational process. The other is that, you know, <laughs> uh, the Supreme Leader tweeted at Donald Trump earlier this week. Uh, he, he attacked Donald Trump on Twitter, and God forbid uh, you insult our president's ego. Uh, I would not rule out that this was the final straw that led Donald Trump to decide, you know what, I'm being played here. I need to show, uh, show Iran and the world that they, they shouldn't mess with me personally. Uh, otherwise, I don't think that there's any plan for how to deal with this. Uh, I don't think it's part of any broader strategy. Uh, and I certainly haven't heard any articulation from anybody in the administration or any of the supporters of this action within Congress uh, about what comes next and how this actually serves U.S. interests beyond uh, this symbolic, you know, chest beating and this notion that, you know, all that the bad guys understand is, is strength. And so now we've really showed them through our strength. Uh, I haven't heard w what the strategy is or, or what they think is going to happen now. Two quick things. You mentioned the Ayatollah tweeting at Trump, and Soleimani previously has also tweeted at Trump as well, something uh, provocative along those lines. Um, and I'm wondering if you think here that Soleimani miscalculated, that he didn't think that Trump would do something so brazen, as evidenced by the fact that here he is travel traveling into Iraq pretty publicly. Apparently it wasn't a secret he was there. He had come from Syria and traveling alongside in a convoy with uh, a top Iraqi paramilitary leader, uh, leading to the U.S. killing both of them. Yeah, I, I, I do think that um, this was unexpected 
on the Iranian side. And, um, you know, there, there were apparently plenty of opportunities, uh, at least under previous administrations, to assassinate Soleimani. And, um, we, we, you know, we, we've now heard of uh, instances uh, under Obama and under Bush when there, there were such opportunities. And, uh, uh, you know, the leadership decided it, it wasn't it wasn't worth the, the cost of it, that it would generate this blowback, that it would essentially be a declaration of war. And I think, you know, on the Iranian side, the view had been that the United States actually has something to lose by doing this, that the U.S. would not escalate so dramatically um, because of the enormous costs that could be imposed. Uh, and then conversely, with the Iranians, you increasingly see a, a, a government and a country that has less and less to lose, uh, an economy that has been completely uh, decimated and isolated uh, from the rest of the world, uh, in spite of Iran uh, making good on its pledges and its commitments under the nuclear deal. So it was sort of you know, damned if they do, damned if they don't. Uh, and so I think on the Iranian side, you started to see an increasing willingness uh, to take big risks and to potentially, you know, gamble with whatever uh, whatever little capital they they sort of had left. Uh, and so you, you you know you saw the alleged uh, uh, targeting of uh, of tankers and the, the seizure of the the British ship and the uh, alleged strike on uh, the Saudi oil facilities. Uh, but even these actions. Uh, I think we're calculated to come right up to the line of potentially inviting a U.S. counter response uh, uh, in the form of, you know, all out war, you know, direct strikes on Iran or something like that. Uh, but right on the brink of that and with, with, I think, the intent of putting maximum pressure on the United States, showing the U.S. that there was a cost to the economic warfare uh, and the maximum pressure campaign, uh, but without actually triggering a, a full-on uh, military conflict. And I think what we, we see on the U.S. side now with, with the Trump, uh, with the assassination, is kind of a calculation of, well, we're just going to do the most aggressive thing possible, uh, 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 implications be damned. Uh, and you know, for that reason, you know, Soleimani apparently, you know, did not take great pains to ensure that he couldn't be tracked by the United States. Uh, he is somebody who, uh, you know, uh, Supreme Leader Khamenei would refer to as the living martyr because he uh, somehow was around after all these years and because he didn't necessarily fear that he was going to be killed by the United States because of what this would, would mean and what this would embroil the United States in. And apparently that is now all out the, all out of the window. And Donald Trump has shown that, you know, cost be damned, the United States is going to go after Iran. And I think that that is actually the inevitable track that we were on when Donald Trump left the nuclear deal and imposed maximum pressure and sort of uh, uh, blocked off possible pathways for a diplomatic solution. I don't think Donald Trump realized it at the time. I think he was sort of goaded along. And now his ego is in, in play. And he's finally sort of taken the last step to cement this, this uh, you know, what may be an inevitable military exchange. All right, and in terms of costs, let's talk about this in the context of ISIS, because you mentioned a term before, Iranian aggression, which is uh, what Iran is accused of uh, around the Middle East uh, by the US and its allies, Saudi Arabia and Israel. But to me, what is called Iranian aggression in this context really is actually Iran's foreign policy 
of taking steps to defend itself against uh, the U.S. and its proxies, um, and also against ISIS, which has been fueled by uh, U.S. policies. I don't think deliberately giving rise to ISIS, but I think ISIS was a consequence of U.S. policies, starting with the invasion of Iraq and then growing with the proxy war in Syria. So can you talk about what Soleimani meant for the fight against ISIS and what his, his murder might mean for ISIS's potential resurgence now? Yeah, I, I, I do think that, um, I think you're right about the term Iranian aggression. I mean, I, you know, I condemn all acts of, of, of violence and think that this cycle of escalatory violence and war and whichever side it's on uh, is uh, self-perpetuating and there needs to be a short-circuiting of, of this vicious circle. Um, that being said, you know, Iran clearly is the, the weaker party when it comes to military power, uh, you know, whether it's the United States or the U.S. allies in the region, Israel, which has, uh, you know, hundreds of nuclear weapons, or the Saudis, whose uh, defense budget dwarfs uh, Iran's. Uh, and so the, you know, the very much defensive strategy of Iran has been to uh, to utilize these these proxy forces, regional militias, uh, uh, in some cases with, with, with Hezbollah, the uh, archetype for this. Uh, in other cases, you know, more coordinated or, or, or less coordinated. Um, but you know, this is, with, with all due respect to my, my government, in the United States, this is Iran's backyard. Um, and so the idea of Iran being the aggressor against a foreign military, I think, is, is at least uh, worth a debate. Uh, and inside Iran, you know, even as we've seen kind of two different poles inside the country, um, we've seen in recent weeks uh, these massive protests where people who are fed up with the economic situation in Iran and fed up with the corruption uh, in the Iranian leadership and how this economy has these, uh, these, these major winners who are usually connected with the Revolutionary Guard or with the elite levels of the government, and then uh, these you know, losers who are continuing to, to struggle and can't even get access to basic goods and medicine because, in large part, U.S. sanctions uh, along with the corruption. Uh, and so, so you see, you know, the... the uh, opposition to the Iranian government and the entire Iranian regime uh, sort of uh, uh, increasing inside of Iran and increased willingness by uh, people to turn out and, and to, to protest and, and demonstrate and even in some cases resort to violence, which, uh, you know, and then the Iranian government responding with violence. So, so you, you have this, this pent-up feeling inside of Iran. Uh, the other poll, though, has been that inside of Iran, you know, a lot of people saw these these protests and were really scared because they see what's happening in the region. They've seen what's happened in the region over the past several years and the, the rise of ISIS uh, and the potential disintegration of Iran, the potential for uh, Iran uh, falling into a civil war or you know an ethnic conflict and turning into a, a Syria. Uh, and I think both saw the protests as something that were justified. Uh, but uh, very dangerous for the future of the country and sort of, you know, you, you stick with the devil you know. 
Uh, and Soleimani is somebody who actually, according to polling uh, conducted uh, by the University of Maryland, uh, I think polled at something like 80% approval inside of Iran. Uh, he, he, he was the most popular figure inside of the country because in spite of the fact that he was you know, entrenched, an entrenched part of the ruling establishment uh, and a hardline figure uh, who uh, helped train and, and operationalize the repressive elements that were used domestically inside of Iran to clamp down on repression, uh, and you know, who for all intents and purposes uh, is affiliated or, or, or leads a group that has benefited from the sanctions and the, the conflict with the United States. And yet still, he was viewed as somewhat of a protector of Iran or, or, or the protector of Iran. He was the one who defeated ISIS, who prevented Iran from falling into the, uh, the conflicts that had engulfed the rest of the region. Finally, your group, the National Iranian American Council, has been very active uh, in Washington, that's where you are, um, in drumming up uh, congressional and public support for the Iran nuclear deal and trying to save it. Um, I want to ask you specifically about Democrats, whether you think that they have done enough to try to defend what was a signature Obama administration policy. I'm thinking now especially of back in 2017 when Congress, including Democrats, uh, united, except for Bernie Sanders and Rand Paul, to pass new sanctions on Russia, North Korea, and Iran. And Bernie Sanders at the time warned that he was opposing that, uh, that measure because he wanted to save the Iran nuclear deal, but he couldn't get any other Democrats to go along with it. I'm wondering, do you think Democrats have done enough to try to save the Iran nuclear deal from collapse, which at this point now, I, I wonder if you, if, if you agree or not, seem, the collapse of which seems inevitable. I, I, I do agree that the, the collapse of the Iran deal is probably, um, you know, I don't want to pull anything out, and I think that uh, there's still, I mean, I think right now this is, for me at least, uh, a moment that demonstrates uh, how much of an imperative it is to, you know, for, for Donald Trump to lose his election in 2020 and for the next president to be somebody who will fully repudiate what this guy has done, uh, including his policy towards Iran, uh, and try to patch back together some pathway towards a political solution. Um, but as far as what the Democrats have done, I mean, you know, Russia has been the, the, the great lubricant for all of the stuff Trump actually wanted to get done and, and all the stuff the people around Trump wanted to get done. So, you know, the, you mentioned the Iran sanctions that were passed in 2017. Um, you know, I, in, in a conversation with a very senior Democrat, the most senior Democrat, was told that, uh, you know, my concerns about the Democrats passing or, or signing on to those sanctions and combining them with Russia's sanctions uh, uh, was going to give Trump a pass to eventually abandon the Iran deal and, uh, you know, sort of neuter the Democrats' ability to stand up to Donald Trump against that by encouraging him to, you know, continue with more and more sanctions. Uh, and I was told, no, Donald Trump's not going to leave the deal. It's all posturing. It's never going to happen. It's, it's, it's not going to happen full stop. Uh, and so, you know, as much as, you know, people in Washington and around the country say this is not normal and Donald Trump has to be you know, treated as a, a special type of threat, uh, it has been very much business as usual. 
Uh, and even with, you know, now we're doing this impeachment thing, and we're going to be doing the impeachment while Donald Trump is marching us off the cliff to war. Uh, so I really think that, you know, on things like the nuclear deal and with his Iran policy, you know, there was an opportunity to be strong and to, to kind of, you know, everyone has to put their foot down and say, we're not going to allow you to sort of breach, uh, to, to even flirt with breaching this deal. Uh, and by kind of sending these mixed signals and really perpetuating the politics that provide the, um, the kindling for these types of, uh, of activities, you know, like by the Democrats turning Iran sanctions once again into good politics uh, actually helped lay the groundwork for Donald Trump to end the deal and then escalate these sanctions and, and now potentially start this war with Iran that we've been warning about for so long. Um, and it really makes you think that there's got to be, you know, with the, with the Democratic uh, majority taking, taking over, uh, there, there still hasn't been this real recognition of what we're up against. And so it really makes you think that whoever the nominee is and who the next president is, needs to take this seriously and not treat this as business as usual or something where you can compromise with the politics that uh, Donald Trump is engaged with. But that, you know what, we need to, if, if Democrats are, are for the nuclear deal and against a war with Iran, then, then be for those things. Don't try to have it both ways. I do think that, you know, they've come a long way from where, where they were before the nuclear deal. And I think that the nuclear deal, um, the battle to get it through Congress actually really did turn it into a partisan issue and did firm up Democrats uh, in not so consistently reverting to Iran bashing in order to uh, gain politically. Uh, but they still haven't been rid of that inclination fully. And hopefully this is the wake up call and we, we start to see some real actions, including, you know, uh, forcing some votes on legislation to block Donald Trump or at least make very clear that Donald Trump does not have the authority to start a war with Iran and to uh, to really box this administration in from escalating any further. Only right now, only Congress and the 2020 candidates, I think, the sort of political and institutional power to uh, to make that happen. Jamal Abdi, president of the National Iranian American Council, thank you very much. Thank you, Aaron.